Our Father, we are here to adore You. We know that we receive all kinds of blessings, all kinds of relational, physical, material, spiritual blessings from being in Your family and a part of Your church, Lord. But we know that our primary reason is to gather together and look up to You and say, worthy are You. Holy are You. You are the infinite God of glory. You are supreme and set apart. You are separate. You are the holy other. You are higher and bigger and better and more glorious than anything or any person we can possibly imagine or create in our minds. You are God. And we worship You and we are here to adore You. Father, we want to say thank You that You have disclosed a measure of Your glory to us in Your creation. And we want to say thank You for disclosing the fullness of Your glory to us in Your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank You that we, when we look upon Him and we see grace and truth, we know that we are beholding Your beauty and Your excellence. And so as we embark upon this new year, Lord, as we embark upon this new sermon series, we want to invite You to show us how awesome You are. And we would pray, Lord, that You would humble us. We pray that You would produce in us not pride, not not spiritual arrogance, not stiffness, but You would produce in us a humility and an awe and an excitement that we may be more zealous to run to the cross and that we may be more excited to live for Your glory than we ever have before. Even Lord, for those who have lived six decades on this planet, I pray that You would make them more excited this year to live for Your glory than they've ever been. I pray for those who are 10 years old or 20 years old, Lord, that You would inflame their hearts, that You would light a fire in their spirits, that they may be excited to belong to Your kingdom and to live for Your glory. Amen. Yes. Father, I pray that You will do this through the the teaching of Your Word through the singing of songs, through the praying of prayers, through the lessons that are given at Build and on Wednesday nights and Monday nights with the ladies' study and Saturday mornings with Act Like Men. And in every other possible way, Lord, would You build Your kingdom as You build Your people here at Redeemer Church. Now, fathers, we turn our attention and our eyes to Your Word We pray that You will do a miracle. That You will open the eyes of our heart. That we may see You. And in seeing You, we might be resolved by the power of the Holy Spirit to live for You in this world. For Christ's sake we pray. Amen. God is building His kingdom. 
God is building His kingdom. And when it comes to full completion and full fruition, it will be an exquisitely beautiful and astonishingly excellent, glorious kingdom. Can I get an amen? In that day, there will be no sin, only obedience. In that day, there will be no darkness, only light. In that day, there will be no sorrow, only satisfaction. There will be no pain, only pleasure. There will be no idolatry, only worship. It will be a kingdom like no other kingdom. It will be sweet and beautiful and fresh and fun and exhilarating and interesting and intense and reverent and holy all at the same time. And I would like for you to right now take a moment to think about the kingdom of God in all of its glory. Think about the glory of Jesus Christ and the multitudes of worshipers from every tribe and every nation. Think about the purity of life. Think about the sound of the music as we gather around the throne of the Lamb and sing, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Think about the amazing heights that we will climb. Think about the sights that we will see in the new heavens and the new earth. Think about the beauty and the brightness that emanate from the Son of God forever and ever. It will be an infinite celebration of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But that will be then. And this is now. Right now, God is in the process of building His kingdom. But instead of there being perfect purity and unending perfection, there is an ongoing experience of crisis and chaos all the time. And it's not just that way for this generation. It's been this way ever since Adam and Eve decided to walk away from the glory and goodness of God and away from the kingdom of God on earth, and to go their own way and to build their own kingdom. When God created the world and put everything into motion, life on earth was perfect. The kingdom of God was perfect. There was peace on earth, goodwill toward men. The kingdom of God was a thing of beauty. But when temptation came, so did rebellion. And with rebellion came crisis. And chaos. And for the last six or seven thousand years, human life has been a mixed bag of beauty and ugliness and sweetness and bitterness and success and suffering and crisis and chaos all at the same time. But providentially, God has been building His kingdom during that entire time. Think about this, Abraham. God initiates a relationship with Abraham and makes a covenant of love with him. And he says, I will build my kingdom through you and through your offspring to the extent that all the peoples of the earth will be blessed, Abraham. And in your mind, you're thinking, oh, this is going to go really good and really perfect for Abraham. And then what happens? God begins to build His kingdom through Abraham and chaos and crisis ensue immediately. Think about Sodom and Gomorrah. Think about the fact that Abraham himself approaches two different people groups and lies about his relationship with Sarah in order to save his own skin. 
Think about the fact that his wife, Sarah, remained barren for many, many years. And then once she has a child, he's asked to go offer his child up on the altar. It's nothing but crisis and chaos as God is building His kingdom. And then we look at the people of Israel as they develop and grow. And then they're put into slavery and bondage. And we look at the life of Moses. And and here Moses is. He's almost killed, murdered, executed because of the edict that Pharaoh had put out. But yet he's saved. And then he ultimately kills an Egyptian and goes into isolation. And he feels like his life is over. And God is yet still going to build his kingdom. He remembers the cries of his people. And God chooses Moses to go back and advance the kingdom of God as he delivers his people out of Egypt and up to the promised land. But even in the midst of all that, even in the midst of God using Moses in a great way, Moses' life was marked by chaos and crisis. And then you think about the life and ministry of Joshua. And then you look at the book of Judges. And you see men like Samson, who you think, oh, this is it. This is going to be it. And here he is strong. And he delivers, he delivers Israel from Philistia over and over again. And yet he himself is caught in the chaos of sin and rebellion and lust and adultery. And what happens? What happens? He falls by the way. And yet God is still advancing his kingdom. Church, we could trace all of the Old Testament and we could see that God is steadily building His kingdom through chaos and crisis all the way to the point where a virgin Mary gives birth to this baby Jesus. And do you realize that the Son of God, the Savior of the world, the King of kings is born into chaos and crisis and lives His entire life on earth through that? You would think that when they beheld the glorious Son of God, that every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that He is Lord. But no, that's not what happened. People hated Him. Religious leaders were jealous of Him. They persecuted Him. And they ultimately killed Him, the King. And yet, even in the midst of the persecution, and even in the midst of the mockery, even in the midst of the murder, God is building His kingdom in chaos and crisis. And I get to this very point. God is building His kingdom today. He's building it. Christ said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Do you know that in this midst, right here in this small church in Oxford, Alabama, tucked away in the friendship neighborhood of area code 36203, zip code, he is building his kingdom. It doesn't look like much. And we're full of lots of things of chaos and crisis. But I can guarantee you, based upon the authority of the word of God, that God is building his glorious kingdom through us. It is through brokenness and sin and pain, through prayer and resolve and praise, He is building His kingdom. And we must see it and we must believe it. And in the midst of our crisis and chaos, we must not run away from God. We must run to God for help and hope. We must run to His Son, Jesus Christ. And at His throne, we will find the skill to live for His glory and the pleasure to experience pain and suffering and chaos and crisis all at the very same time because we are sure that God is working in our midst to build His kingdom. So, 
we enter the book of first and second Samuel. We enter the books of first and second Samuel. And I believe what the Lord wants to teach us as we study these two books is that he's building his kingdom and it's not it's not always painless and it's not always fun. Sometimes it is painful and sometimes there is great chaos and crisis. But what we need to do is trust Him and worship Him and serve Him with all of our heart and all of our soul and all of our mind and all of our strength. And we need to do that precisely because this is how He builds His kingdom. And so this is the context. You can open your Bibles to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. This is the context. It is 1050 B.C. 1050 B.C. It's 3,000 years ago. It's, it's been 200 years since Joshua has ushered the Israelite people into the promised land, into Canaan. It's been 200 years since then. And it's the period called the Judges. We read about the Judges in the book of Judges. At the very end of the book of Judges, this is what the text says. In those days... There was no king in Israel. And everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This was postmodernism before modernism. They defined what was true and right and real, and they lived according to their own definition. And what the pattern was during this time, as we look our eyes upon Samuel is that the people of Israel abandoned the goodwill of the Lord. And so the Lord then disciplines them by bringing in foreign armies to conquer them and to show them who, their sin. And then they pray to the Lord for deliverance and for help, and the Lord brings a judge, a leader, a deliverer. And that pattern is repeated over and over and over again. And that's where we find ourselves in Samuel. Now, the central place of worship during this time is a place called Shiloh. Shiloh was the the, the central hub of Israelite worship. The tabernacle was there. The Ark of the Covenant was there. The Lord's priests were there. Annual feasts and festivals and celebrations and sacrifice were all at Shiloh. And it's a Shiloh is a place that was north of Bethel. Uh, it, it would be north of what would become Jerusalem. And this was the place where all Israel would go to celebrate the goodness of God. So this is, this is the big idea. This is a big idea for us today. And that is that God will glorify His greatness. And He will build His kingdom through the hardships of your life and the humility of your heart. That's what we're about to read about. God will build His kingdom through the hardships of your life and through the humility of your heart. And if you want to join Him in Him building His kingdom and ushering in this glorious presence of King Jesus, then the first thing that you need to do is embrace your hardships as they are sent from the Lord and you need to humble your heart before Him so that God will work in you and through you and for you. And so we're going to study... Chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, verse 11 today. And as we read this passage, there are really four scenes that unfold. 
There are four scenes that unfold that show us hardship, show us brokenness, and show us how humility is what is needed as God builds His kingdom. And so scene one, we can title Brokenness and Brutality. Brokenness and Brutality. Let's look down at the text. There was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuth, and Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now we can assume that Elkanah had Hannah as his wife first, and then took Panina because Hannah could have no children. Or so it was assumed. Verse 3. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. Samuel is introducing to us these priests because he's going to come back to them next week. On the way when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah his wife and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he gave a double portion because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival, her rival used to provoke her grievously, to irritate her. Because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. That is, Panina provoking Hannah time and time again, year after year after year. And therefore, Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? And why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you? Than ten sons? Church, I want us to see here, first of all, just the brokenness of life. The brokenness of biology. I mean, this woman is a wife to her husband and she's bearing no children for him. And in this context, in this context of the kingdom of God and in this life, Worth was often found in the bearing of children. And not just the bearing of any children, the bearing of male children. Why? Because male children would advance the family name. Male children could do business for the family. Male children could inherit the land. Male children could carry on the namesake and everything that goes along with that. And here she is. She is barren. She has no children. And folks, I just want to say to you that life doesn't work the way that it originally was intended by God to work before sin entered the world. Biology doesn't work. The world is broken. People are broken. Life is broken. And because of that, there are some tragedies that are real. Infertility is real. Divorce is real. Jealousy is real. Malice is real. Anxiety is real. Crisis is real. Chaos is real. And you and I need to embrace the reality that brokenness is real on this planet until King Jesus comes back a second time. The second thing we want to see is the brokenness of marriage. Verse 2 says he had two wives. 
Having multiple wives was never God's original plan. It was never His best plan for marriage. Now, was it accepted in Israel at this time? Yes, it was. Was it best? No, it was not. God created marriage. He created man and woman. And He says that a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Not not his multiple wives. Not another husband. But to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh and, and yet here we see the brokenness of marriage. And whenever marriage is distorted from God's original design, it will usher in a whole new set of problems and pitfalls. Notice that in the text, Hannah and Panina are called rivals. Rivals. Because I just want to tell you, Alabama and Auburn should be rivals. Okay? Um, Ford and Chevy should be rivals. Two women shouldn't be rivals. But they are rivals because instead of there being one man and one woman, there's one man and two women. The brokenness of marriage. Look at the brokenness of worship. So they go up year by year. and We are to believe that Elkanah is a righteous man. He's a humble man. He's an earnest man. And yet, when they go up to worship, there's this brokenness that happens because every time they go up, He gives a double portion to his wife who doesn't have any kids and that creates animosity certainly from the other wife because it is clear that he loves Hannah more than he loves Panina. And then you see the insensitivity during worship. You see down there at at verse 8, Elkanah says to Hannah, why are you weeping? Why don't you eat? Why is your heart set? Am I not worth more to you than ten sons? And the fact is, no, you're not Elkanah. Because I'm not working the way I'm supposed to work. I'm broken. And it bothers me. And not only that, Panina puts it in my face all the time, which we will see. You see, Hannah has two big problems in her life. Number one, she has no children. She's assumedly barren. But number two, she was taunted for her barrenness. Hannah had salt poured in her wound time and time again by the other wife, Panina. I was so struck by the provocation uh, that Panina gives to Hannah this week as I read through Dale Ralph Davis's work on Samuel. Listen to what he says. He says, Panina apparently used special worship occasions for getting Hannah's goat. Panina herself likely chafed under Elkanah's obvious affection for Hannah. And we can imagine how it must have been. Listen to this, church. These are the words of Panina, assumedly. Now do all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Uh, What what did you say, dear? I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Miss Hannah, oh yes, that's right, she doesn't have any children. Well, doesn't she want children, Mommy? Oh yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish you had children too? Doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does, but Miss Hannah keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Why not? Why? Because God won't let her. Does God not like Miss Hannah? Well, I don't know. What do you think? Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever be pregnant, Hannah? End quote. But year after year after year, 
Penina went after Hannah. Can you imagine the misery? Can you imagine the disappointment? Can you imagine the feelings of anxiety as you go up to worship the Lord? You have to hear this year after year after year. This is the brutality of jealousy and malice coming from Panina. I just want to stop for one moment and just speak to the children. Children, if you'll lock eyes with me, you're going to feel like you're better than other children a lot. You're going to feel like you're stronger or faster or more beautiful or more normal than other kids. And I just want to encourage you. I actually want to instruct you. Don't make fun of other kids. Don't ever make fun of them. Don't ridicule them. Don't say what they don't have or what they do have. Listen, everything that you have is by the grace of God. Everything that you are is a demonstration of grace. So instead of looking at others and elevating yourselves against them, just say, thank you, Lord, for the grace that you've given to me. You can pray for your friends. There are many things in life that you have no control over, church. Let's think about this. Think about it. There, there are many things in life you have no control over. You, you have no control over whether or not you get a particular disease. One of my best friends in the world has been recently diagnosed with ALS, Lou Gehrig's disease. There's no control over that. You and I have no absolute control over our lifespan. We don't know when we're going to die. We just know that we are going to die. We have no control over whether or not somebody's going to love us well or whether they're going to despise us or abuse us. We have no control over those things. We have no control over whether or not we have children or we don't, or whether our children are ultimately going to believe in the Lord or whether they're not. We have no control over whether or not we get accepted into the university of our choice. And the reality is that we must get real comfortable with the brokenness of life and the brokenness of pain. Because ultimately, listen church, you do not determine your own destiny. God does. You are not the captain of your own ship. God is. God, you do not write your story. God does. And we need to, get, need to get comfortable with that. That's scene one. Brokenness and brutality. Let's look at scene two. Scene two is prayer and peace. Pick up in verse 9. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. And Hannah was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. Like I said, this was just more than she could take. But Hannah rose up and in the midst of her misery, in the midst of her despondency and her depression and her struggling and her anxiety and being ridiculed time and time again, Hannah finally decides, I'm going to do something about this. I'm going to take action. I will do something. And so what does she do? She goes and, and just absolutely pours her heart out to God. Listen, church, whenever... Whenever we're experiencing difficulty and brokenness and pain, we really have two options. We have two options. We can seek deeper into discouragement and bitterness and ultimately into anger. Or we can run to God. It's really our two options. And praise God that Hannah ran to Him. She chose option two. And so what does she do? Verse 11, she vowed 
a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if You will indeed look on the affliction of Your servant and remember me and not forget Your servant, but will give to Your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Alright church, look down at, at that prayer. Look down at the prayer because we want to make some observations about what's going on here. In this prayer, I think the first observation that we can make is that Hannah knows who God is. O Lord of hosts, that name for the Lord is Yahweh, which means eternal existence, eternal presence. God is always here, and He's always alive. I cannot leave His presence. And I know that He is my covenant God because He has made covenant with my people, Israel. And not only is He just merely Yahweh, He is Yahweh of hosts. That is, He is the Yahweh of the great army. She is picturing this general of this massive army, which we know to be the army of the angels. And He is leading His forces into battle. And He fights the battles for His people as He leads the host of armies who are going to defend His glory and defend His honor. And she calls Him, O Lord of hosts, because she knows who God is. Listen, if you're ever going to pray, if you're ever going to cry out to God, if you're ever going to call out to Him, then you've got to know who God is. You must know the Lord. The second thing that we see here is her humility. Does she call herself a queen? Does she call herself someone who is elevated in stature? What does she call herself? A servant. She knows who she is. She is a servant of the Most High God, the Lord of hosts. She does not declare her specialness. She does not declare her highness. But rather, she humbly approaches the King of kings and says, here I am, your servant. And then she expresses her desire. She says, remember me. Remember me. Don't forget me. And I believe that that she's really echoing the cries of the people of Israel from, from the time of the Abrahamic covenant on. If we go back and read Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, we see that the Lord remembered Abraham and saved him from Sodom and Gomorrah. The Lord remembered Noah during the time of unrighteousness and rescued him through the waters. The Lord remembered His people Israel while they were in Egypt and rescued them and delivered them from the tyranny of Pharaoh. The Lord is a remembering God. It's not as if He forgets, but He acts upon the people who call on His name for help. Notice that her prayer, fourth, this is really the fourth observation about her prayer. It is an if-then prayer. If-then. If you do this, then I will do that. But church, make no mistake, she is not playing games with God. This is not a negotiation table where she's holding some trump cards and she knows God is holding some trump cards and right now she's just trying to negotiate with God. This is not a negotiation. This is not a bargaining table here. Listen, you and I are used to if-then prayers. We've either prayed them or we've heard them prayed. Lord, if You heal me of this cancer, then I'll never smoke again. Lord, if You heal my child of a disease, then I will never miss a Sunday church service again. Lord, if You deliver me from this difficult situation, then I promise I'll start giving money to the church. Those are bargaining things. 
That's that's a negotiation with God. Look, there's no negotiation with Hannah. She's saying, I'm in pain and I'm going to worship you through the pain, but if you give me motherhood, if you give me a child, I'm going to worship you by giving him to you. I'm not going to worship him. I'm not going to worship the baby. I'm not going to keep him for myself. I'm not going to glow in the bask of the glory of me bearing a child. No, if you give me a child, I'm going to worship you in the midst of you giving me a child. That's so important. We have no no right to bargain with God as if we're going to hold worship from Him. We're going to hold honor, withhold honor from Him until He gives us what we want. No, Hannah is going to worship Him regardless. And that's why when we see, she's going to be at pace. Let's look at verse 12 and following. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved. And her voice was not heard. Therefore, Eli took her to be a drunken woman. Now, that that actually gives you a little bit of insight into the nature of worship in Shiloh during these days. That, That because he saw this woman by herself, kind of mouthing things, that he just assumed she was she was like a lot of the other women, drunk. Worship is a low ebb. It is a gray day in the kingdom of Israel during this time. And so Eli said to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered, no, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I've drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I've been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, a drunken woman. For all along, I've been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And notice her response. She said, let your servant find favor in your eyes. And the woman went her way and ate. And her face was no longer sad. I titled this scene, Prayer and Peace. Because in the midst of her praying and offering up her request to God and vowing her vow to God and pouring out all of her anxiety and all of her discouragement and all of her depression and all of her misery and letting God know exactly what she wants and why she wants it and what she's going to do if He grants it to her. She knows that she has poured out everything she possibly can pour out and she knows that everything at this point is in His hands. Everything is in His hands, not hers. She's done all she can possibly do. And for that reason, she's now at peace. If God grants her a son, praise God. If God doesn't grant her a son, praise God. I've done all I can do, Hannah would say. And then Eli encourages her. He blesses her. And I just want to say this. While Eli was not necessarily a godly man, certainly not a great parent, there is blessing when the people of God approach people who are struggling and speak life and blessing and peace into bad situations. And that's exactly what Eli does here. You know, Daniel Coleman and I were uh, sitting in the coffee shop last night across from one another and we were talking about this passage. And we were talking about pouring your heart out to God, like at the altar. Pouring your heart out to God in the just anywhere where you just you just pour it out. And then why is it sometimes that we don't 
leave that place in peace. Have you ever poured your heart out to God and not had peace? That happens sometimes. Well, it, made, it got me to thinking, and I wanted to answer that question. Sometimes we don't have peace because we don't pour all of our souls out to God. We only give Him a portion. I always say we're going to give five minutes to God as I pour out this major life problem to Him. Tell you what, you give five minutes to God about a major life problem, that just doesn't show that you're pouring your heart out to Him. Second, we don't truly believe God. So we might go to the altar, or we might go to a place, but in the back of our minds, we still have a skepticism, a secularism, an unbelieving heart that says, even though I talk to God, it doesn't mean that He's going to make a difference in things. But the third thing, I think is most poignant for us, is that many times when we pray to God and we pour out our soul to Him, we don't leave with peace because we want what we're praying for more than we want God Himself. May Redeemer Church be marked by prayer. Fervent, desperate, anxiety-filled, depression-filled even, hopeful, heart-wrenching, exhausting prayer that we might experience the peace that comes from putting everything in His hands and leaving nothing in our own. Third, I want us to look at scene three. Remembrance and resolve. Remembrance and resolve. Verse 19. They rose early in the morning and worship before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah didn't go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I'll bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine. And she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. I'm going to press the pause button for a second. I just couldn't help but think. It's a little different today than it was in that day. Today we put pink and blue ribbons on mailboxes and we smoke cigars. In this day, they take a three-year-old bull and some flour and some wine and slaughter the bull and mix it with with, with bread. It's just a little different. That, that, That phrase... Uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same is not true in this statement right here. In this... Anyway, the child was young. And so they slaughtered the bull and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, Oh my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I'm the woman who was standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to Him. Therefore, I have lent Him. I have dedicated Him. To the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent, he is dedicated to Yahweh. And he worshiped the Lord there. 
Let's, let's want us to just observe just a couple things here. The Lord remembered Sarah. I'm, I'm sorry, the Lord remembered Hannah. And so she named him Samuel, which means heard by God. Heard by God. And so for the rest of his life, Samuel's name would bear the mark that Yahweh, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, heard the cry of this servant Hannah and answered her prayer. I think we also want to observe the fact that Elkanah says, may the Lord establish His Word. If you read ahead of time this week, and if you did, thank you for that. It makes preaching a lot easier and better because you know the story, you know what's unfolding. If you read that like I did this week and you wondered, what is he talking about? May the Lord establish His Word. May the Lord establish His Word. Let me tell you something about the Word of God. The Word of God is the declaration of His promises. The declaration of His plans. And Elkanah knew that God's plans were to build His kingdom through the people of Israel. To fulfill His promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And I believe that Elkanah is saying, well, no matter when you bring Him, and no matter what happens, may the Lord establish His promised Word to the people of Israel. And in fact, that's what God does. Both in the immediate and in the ultimate. I also want us to see here Hannah's resolve. Last week, we called one another to a life of resolve. We said that resolve is a spirit-led determination to live a disciplined gospel life for the glory of God. That's what we said. Now listen, Hannah has had no children. And she has lived beside a woman who has had scores of children. And now she gets a child. How tempted do you think she was to hold on to her child? How inclined do you think that when she was holding her or nursing her, she thought to herself, I wonder if if God really expects me to fulfill my vow to Him. Surely he, He would understand if I... Look, we don't know what went on in her mind. We don't know what went on in her heart, but what we do know is that this woman was resolved to live a disciplined life for the glory of the Lord more than her maybe right or even good desires to parent her child. She was resolved. And we need to observe that in this text. Folks, God cares for you because He remembers your woes and your pain and your brokenness. And because He does, you should resolve to live for Him and for His glory. Finally, I want us to see scene four. So, as a a young child, God had ordained it that Samuel would be left at at the temple, at the tabernacle, to serve, to work, to labor, to learn, to grow, and to be especially given over to the service of Yahweh. She says that he won't, he won't cut his hair. That implies that there's a Nazarite vow there, that he's a Nazarite, that he's a man especially given over to the work and service of the Lord at his temple, at his tabernacle, and in his kingdom. And so she gives him over for that service. And so Hannah prays. And church, let's just observe how Hannah 
honors the Lord by declaring His greatness, by declaring His transforming power, by declaring His victory. Notice the praise and the prophecy that Hannah gives as she experiences the good hand of the Lord upon her. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. She, she's, she's saying horn because there's a picture of an animal with horns. And she said, my horn is exalted in the Lord. I have, I have victory. I have power. I have strength because of the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies. She's picturing herself as maybe a, an animal that is going in for the kill, for, for the defeat. Because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none. Oh, I want to say this. I want to say this. Notice she says, I rejoice in your salvation. I rejoice in your salvation. And some, like me, would say, well, that's not exactly salvation, is it, Hannah? I mean, God just gave you a child. It's not like she, He actually redeemed your life from the pit and gave you like spiritual salvation here. We're tempted to say that. But this is what I want to say. That every time God delivers you from something, it is a microcosm of salvation. Yeah. When God spared my life, when I pulled out in front of that traffic and a car hit me going really, really fast and He saved me, you know what I experienced? I experienced salvation. I experienced a microcosm of the spiritual salvation that He has given to me. And any time we're delivered, and any time we receive His grace, we need to say with Hannah, I rejoice in your salvation. She says, there is none holy like the Lord. For there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more very proudly. You have to think that she has Panina in her mind here. Talk no more very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth. For the Lord is a God of knowledge. And by Him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken but the feeble bind on strength. Notice the comparison between the prideful and the wicked on one side and the humble and the righteous on the other side. She does this over and over again and she's saying that God has transforming power. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. I don't think that she's necessarily talking about herself here. I think she's talking about anybody who would humble themselves before the mighty hand of the Lord and receive His blessing. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. Listen, when I say that the sovereignty of God is the fact that God does what He wants, when He wants, with whom He wants, how He wants, I say that because of texts like this right here. The Lord kills and He brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and He raises up. Tell me resurrection is not in the Old Testament. She says right here that God raises up. The Lord makes poor and He makes rich. He brings low and He exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust and He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth, that is the foundations of the earth, are His the Lord's, and on them He has set the world. And then here is the prophetic element of her prayer. He will guard the feet of His faithful ones. He is a protector. But the wicked shall be cut off in darkness, for not by might shall a man prevail. In all honesty, in transparency, 
I almost titled this entire series in Samuel, Not By Might. Not by might. Listen, the kingdom of God is never going to be advanced by mining your fleshly power and in of our own wisdom and our own ingenuity and creativity. The kingdom of God will be advanced as we humble ourselves before His mighty and powerful hand. Look at this prophecy. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them He will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King. Does that strike you at all a bit odd? Why does it strike us as a little odd? There is no King in Israel. And yet, this little maidservant... This little woman who was formerly barren, who was a nobody in a nothing town, prays to God and says, may you give strength to your king and exalt the horn of his anointed. This is the prophetic element of the people of God when they humble themselves before him and cry out to him and pour their hearts to him God grants illumination. God grants grace. God grants hope. God grants power for life and endurance in ministry. And so what happens after this prayer? Elkanah and assumedly his family go home to Ramah. And the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Those are the four scenes that open up the book of Samuel. I uh, spent some time meditating this week on what this passage, what this text tells us about God. Church, I want us to, uh, to close this time right now of the sermon before we're ushered into communion and celebrating the Lord's table. I want us to, to reflect on the person of our God. So you can do one of two things. You can kind of put your notebook up and your Bible up and just meditate if it's closing your eyes or whatever that is. Or you can keep your notebook open and write things down as they strike you. But I want us to ask and answer the question, what does this text tell us about our God and what is our response to Him? I first want to say that God exercises grace and mercy in the midst of human sin all the time. We look at a bad marriage. We look at a broken marriage. And yet God still extends grace and mercy to that family. You and I should give praise to God for undeserved and ill-deserved grace in our lives. I want you to think right now. Why don't you think right now all the ways that God has blessed you in spite of your sin? All the ways that He has poured out compassion and mercy to you even though you were living in waywardness. Praise Him today. Praise Him. Let's also remember that God never promises us the bliss of heaven 
as we live in the brokenness of the earth. So right now, would you resolve not to expect heaven on earth? Would you pray for grace and persevering faith right now? Right now, would you pray that God will grace you with perseverance as you walk through the brokenness of this world, of your life, and even, yes, your own heart? This text also implies that God hates bullying and taunting and arrogant hostility. And just as I encourage the children, would you resolve to kill jealousy in your life, to destroy pride, to never taunt or persecute other people? This text teaches us that God listens with a compassionate ear to the desperate cries of His children. Church, I don't know how to say this any clearer, but you need to pour out your heart to God. You need to spend time crying out to the Lord with your anxieties and your frustrations and your problems and your issues in marriage or your problems in parenting or your bad workplace. You've got to cry out to God. Number one, because He hears you. And number two, because you need to put it in His hands and not leave it in your own. God uses fellow worshipers to encourage the downcast and the depressed. And so would you prepare yourself to be used by God in the lives of struggling believers? Would you not see that as somebody else's job today? But that you would would see the, the difficulties and the struggles of another sister or another brother in Christ and resolve to encourage that brother or that sister. God often answers yes to our desperate, faith-filled prayers. And so what you need to do today is you need to take inventory of all the ways and all the times that God has said yes to you. God glorifies His greatness by blessing the humble and punishing the prideful. Because of that, you need to pursue humility. You need to run as hard as you can away from pride, to run as fast as you can to the foot of the cross, and you need to worship the Lord of glory, Jesus Christ. God gives strength to His King and exalts the horn of His anointed. And so we need to trust the sacrifice of Jesus to cover all of our sins. I finally want to ask this question. How does the gospel bring an effective solution to the crisis and chaos that we see both in this text and in our lives? I wrote down a couple things. Would you please bear with me as we meditate on Jesus as we're about to approach the table? Apart from the gospel, the crisis of barrenness and brokenness could define me and my existence. But with the gospel, I know that God loves me 
and is always working all things for my good. Can I please get an amen? We regularly experience the chaos of sin and the crisis of brokenness, but Jesus bore the weight of our sin and the guilt of our brokenness so that we will live forever in wholeness and fullness and perfection and Christ-likeness. And then finally, Jesus experienced the condemnation that pride earns even though He was humble so that we can receive the blessing that His humility has earned, even though we are prideful. Would you please bow your heads with me?